Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. One of the things I have recently learned is that there isn't just capitalism and socialism, but different kinds of capitalism and different kinds of socialism. In addition, there are alternatives to both of these approaches to economics, like ecological or steady-state economics. Some forms of capitalism work better than others. Some forms of socialism work better than others. What is clear is that the ways we have done and are continuing to do capitalism in the United States have significant problems. So there are innovative experimentations happening in this country to provide alternative capitalisms. Among those are innovators exploring local economics and economies. Two of those innovators are Stephanie Swepson Twitty and Kevin Jones. Stephanie is president and chief executive officer of Eagle Market Streets Development Corporation. Eagle Market Streets is headquartered in the oldest thriving African-American commercial business district in the country in downtown Asheville, North Carolina. Stephanie is a 20-year veteran in the not-for-profit industry. She is an economic development specialist focusing on small business development, asset building, and wealth creation. Kevin and his wife, Rosalie Harden, are serial entrepreneurs. Together, they founded Social Capital Markets, or SOCAP, and began Neighborhood Economics. Kevin has seven successful startups and turnarounds and is a co-leader of the Swannanoa Watershed Donut Economics Social Action Team in partnership with the Hendersonville, North Carolina-based Latino co-op, Tierra Fertile. Stephanie and Kevin are here to help us understand both what they each are doing individually and what they are doing together collaboratively. So welcome, Stephanie and Kevin. Thank you for being with me. Why don't we begin uh, by letting each of you uh, talk about uh, your own journey, your own life journey and spiritual journey uh, that has led you into doing what you personally are doing. Uh, and then tell us a little bit about that work. So who wants to go first? I'll take it first. This is Stephanie Swepson Twitty. I'm a native of Old Fort, North Carolina, McDowell County. I was born and nurtured in McDowell County. Uh, I am the oldest of four um, siblings, have spent my life's work um, thinking about how to be a servant leader, and as such, um, started my career in banking, finance, and retail, uh, have done everything from the front line as a teller uh, to commercial lending, and finally with United Services Credit Union, now Self-Help Credit Union, I was the branch manager and senior lending officer for eight years. Um, coming out of that work, just felt like there was more to do and joined uh, Eco Market Streets Development Corporation in 2004. Okay. Kevin? Yeah. Hi, I'm Kevin Jones. I'm a serial entrepreneur. And uh, I was an Army brat, but my brother, who's eight years older, had been in nine schools in his eighth grade. And my mother said, he's going to go to one high school. So we settled in Hayward, California. Uh, it's in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. It's mostly known for having the cheapest warehouse space. But I met my wife, uh, who was from Mississippi, and her father was going to sell the family weekly newspaper back in uh, Itawamba County, Mississippi, which when she was growing up had been the poorest county in the poorest state. And so I said, well, let's go try that. How different can that be? And um, it was a little bit different, but it turns out that we work really well together. I do things that she doesn't like to do, and she does all these things to make the business work that I can't do. So we were serial entrepreneurs for a long time. And uh, I got into this work after we sold our biz business in the dot-com in a good time. And my daughter said, well, Dad, you know, I was doing another startup because that's just kind of what I did, found something interesting. 
she said, Dad, what's your life about? You know, you've made enough money and you've proved you can do business outside of Mississippi. And that wasn't a question I'd really thought of since college. Um, so I went on kind of a walkabout and discovered along the way that I was not the guy to solve malaria in sub-Saharan Africa and Swaziland and Mozambique, and nobody who looked like me was going to be that guy. And that, um, But I could gather people to look at investing for good, which was just starting up, and we built the largest conference in the world called SOCAP, Social Capital Markets, 3,000 people every year from about 65 countries. And so we did that. And then I realized that was only really helping some people to get investment and that um, there were very few African-Americans getting investment. There were more Africans than African-Americans from those mostly U.S. investors who want to invest for good. And so I started looking at how we can reach the folks who aren't getting the money who need to do the work in America. So we started Neighborhood Economics, which is based on the health of the neighborhood, because it's an actual fact that your zip code is a greater determiner of your health and your wealth and your mortality than your DNA code. So we work to try to create healthy neighborhoods and an economy that works for everybody in every neighborhood. We'll go into a little more detail about the neighborhood economics. Well, we convene um, conferences in places and go deeply local. We're in Jackson, Mississippi, which you've been watching the news is a place in great need now with both infrastructure and then the uh, white legislature wants to take away uh, their policing and, and judicial power and take it over and, and have the legislature rule the town. And they're not happy about that much. It's 88% black. And so we're working with a lot of partners to try to help create economic justice and get the money that's needed to the folks who don't need it. And so we're working, we have people come from around the country working with partners in Jackson, April 24th through 26th, to see what we can do. One thing that's happened is there's a lot of innovation that is delivering economic power to folks who didn't have it. It used to be that economic innovation was for emerging markets, you know, what's happening in Singapore or what's happening in technology. But now there's a lot of innovation, like the thing Stephanie and I have built with this community equity fund that is really changing the rules. So we're gathering folks like Stephanie from around the country who have innovations that they can share and get funded. And we bring together three funding streams, investors who are investing in good because of their faith and uh, catalytic investors who want to invest to cause system change. That's the best part of the impact investing slice. And then people who want to invest to create an economy where their kids or grandkids will want to move back to them. So local investors, faith-based investors who are investing because of their awakened sense of justice, and uh, local investors. Well, Stephanie, um, I guess when when we were talking uh, before the interview uh, into the kind of kinds of economy and and uh, you describe what you do is more in the, in the vein of ecological economics. So kind of talk more about that and talk about Eagle Street. Sure. Um, I joined Eagle Market Streets um, in 2004 as an AmeriCorps intern. For those of you listening who uh, will remember Peace Corps, AmeriCorps was um, the answer to having Peace Corps be on shore. At the time that I joined AmeriCorps, they were um, having a shift in how they, uh, who they worked with, so that typically it was 18 to 35 if you were in the Peace Corps. In AmeriCorps, you could be an aging or mature adult and still serve as an AmeriCorps intern. I joined Eagle Market Street, as I said, um, very much not understanding economic development and community economic development in the sense of the way that I know it now and work and Kevin and I work together. Um, I took the position to do what they call U-STAND. U-STAND was a program that helped uh, individuals, uh, returning citizens to um, have self-employment 
in order to do that work, um, I was given what was known as the Holy Grail. <laughs> it was this 500-page um, uh, manual on how-to in community economic development. When I opened it, though, I read the preface of this document, and my life has never been the same. The first words on the page were community economic development through asset building and wealth creation. Those things leapt off the page at me and ignited, I feel like, a spiritual uh, awakening about how to right set the economy. And so as we read that and looked at that, we saw that it was holistic in its approach. It wasn't just looking at how to amass um, uh, what we call liquid wealth or, or even um, 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 real estate. It was, it was all of that. It was how to be healthy in terms of your physical, spiritual, and financial um, being in, in, in community. Okay. Okay. Well, now, you work together. You, mm -hmm. you have developed a, a collaboration. So talk with us about what that is and, and how that works. So I'll um, jump in the deep end here and say that um, Kevin and I came to know each other through a mutual um, colleague, uh, Miss Jane Hatley, who worked uh, at the time for Self-Help Credit Union. She introduced us one day at Green Sage, and Kevin was um, – very much interested at that time in a program called Kiva. And so I'm going to let him take it there and tell you a little bit about Kiva. Well, you know, yeah, Kiva is a nonprofit platform that lets you for $25 do a zero interest loan to microfinance around the world. So, and you see the individual borrower. So you see, you know, a woman in Afghanistan who has a goat herd and she needs to get a bull goat or a, a serger if she's a seamstress and needs another piece of equipment. And it's also in the U.S. And what I discovered, I, I loved that because it was simple and you could just do that kind of funding. But I discovered that it didn't really work in the U.S. in the communities I tried to work with. I was working with two different accelerators, which is running uh, a dozen to two dozen entrepreneurs through a program to help them create a startup and make it investable. And these were first-time non-college entrepreneurs, 90% women, 90% people of color in Oakland and Cincinnati. I said, look, we can just get this startup money you don't have um, with a Kiva loan. Well, there's a hidden thing in the Kiva loan. You need 25 friends with $25 to get you on the platform. And there were 40 entrepreneurs or so in both of these platforms. Not one entrepreneur could do that. They had 25 friends, but they did not have 25 friends who had $25 they could spare indefinitely. So as a person of privilege who raised debt funds and venture funds and impact funds, I suddenly saw this friends and family gap as something I'd never seen. I'd had friends and family, and I'd be able to call them up and say, this is a good thing, you should invest, you'll make some money. They had friends that they could say, I don't have $25. And so, it was, so I started working with some folks uh, who are now in a, a great uh, fund here in North Carolina called Partners in Equity, Napoleon Wallace. And we created a thing called the Runway Project. And it had the wrong model. It, they, they built the model to my design, and, and here's how I was wrong. Uh, I said, let's make this work for entrepreneurs who, these are folks who don't have the collateral, so they can't get a CDFI loan. Community Development Finance Institutions get money from banks through this thing called the Community Reinvestment Act, and they're supposed to invest in underrepresented communities. But they don't reach the 90% of black and brown business owners who were sole proprietors who don't get money to grow because they don't have collateral and they haven't grown enough to have employees to be able to handle paying back the loan. And so um, we thought, well, we'll just make it above market so everybody will love it. And we said, you can make more money and do good than the other way. Well, it turned out that self-help lost money on every loan, so they really weren't into growing it, and so it was wrong, And but I knew that was a big problem, and I was still concerned about that problem that Kiva doesn't solve when I met Stephanie. Yeah, that, uh, that was a beautiful segue, Kevin, to us thinking about 
um, again, assets and, and wealth and what that disparity over generational time did to the entrepreneur. Those individuals who um, aspire to be entrepreneurs and small business owners um, did not have the support of friends and family to be able to take them to the next level. So this is where we uh, came together, um, Kevin, myself, Jane, uh, several others. Um, we had a CDFI on board. Um, and let me clarify, what's a CDFI? A Community Development Financial Institution. Okay. Um, <laughs> Our local one is Mountain BizWorks, and they, they were an advisor and partner to us as we built what's now known as the Community Equity Fund. At the 10,000-foot level, the Community Equity Fund infuses small businesses with pure equity to put on their balance sheet versus debt. It is some of the most innovative, creative capital available to small businesses, uh, BIPOC and women-owned, that exists right now. In fact, Kevin, I'd be willing to say there's not another um, product like CEF right now. Yeah, I haven't found one. I've been looking. Yeah. There are a lot of uh, folk who have begun to think in the way that Kevin and I do around uh, friends and family and around getting support to BIPOC community, but nothing exists that gives a business who's been in operation for three to five years, they're trending somewhere above fifty grand uh, in their annual or fifty thousand in their annual um, revenues. An opportunity to have equity on their balance sheet for twenty four months uh, with no uh, repay. In month twenty five, they start to repay to the fund. Um, a revenue share of 7%, and they have about 24 to 36 months to pay that um, uh, back. So again, you know, our understanding of giving a business like that an opportunity to become a job creator or, or to get a greater share of the market leading them to job creation is what made this successful. And we've been, as I said before the interview, Kevin and I really complicated it before. So I'll let him share. Right. And now it's pretty simple. You give, we invest. Your gift is doubled every five years. So if we're going to your church and we talk to your Sunday school class and we get $500, maybe $1,000, that money is put into an investment in a black and brown business that has a shot to grow, that's been around, that's resilient. And when they pay that back in five years, your money is recycled to the next business. And so if you give, you become a more powerful giver without passing the plate a second time. And the, the percentage of revenue share we take, 7%, is the industry average. Revenue share business loans are becoming really popular but we're the only one that I think is doing equity down below where debt goes. It's a, it's a new territory. Um, in our conversations prior to the interview, uh, we talked about uh, that what you're doing seeks to replace the extractive paradigm. So explain what the extractive paradigm is, how that works, and then kind of go into detail about what you're doing and how that seeks to replace. So when I think about a, an extractive or sometimes punitive approach to deploying capital, I think about um, traditional capital asks for P&I, uh, principal and interest. It asks for monthly or, or payment process that is often um, – not conducive to uh, growth in the types of businesses that Kevin and I work with. And more importantly, it's the um, notion that if I support you, that I have to have a greater gain with my support than I would if I were doing a community equity fund. Yeah. And so, in my earlier life, I was a venture capitalist, uh, you know, putting equity in businesses. But you're measured by a metric called internal rate of return. 
And what that means is how fast do you get out the money and how much do you get out? Now, you know, Blackbeard the pirate has that same metric. All you're measured on is how much money you get out. That's really what banks do. And so it's extractive because if the business fails, the bank doesn't fail. They'll take your assets. They'll take your capital equipment. They'll, they'll take things. They extract, whereas we're putting money in to help them grow, and then they can pay us back through revenue share. So the business, the, the, the economy is built for the folks on top to take out more. I mean, people really came to realize that in the pandemic when people realized my aunt is just a human resource that the, the business doesn't care about. It's like they're willing to use up their other resources. They're willing to use up my aunt. People realized how rapacious the major economy, the, the, the ruling economy was during the pandemic. And that you know, we had essential workers that didn't really count, but they were left out there. So I think people are being aware that the economy is not built for them. It's built for the people on top. We're building an economy, as uh, Joe Biden says, from the bottom up and from the uh, middle out. And we're really picking the, the bottom that where these folks can grow but they don't get the money to grow. So it's an amazing economic opportunity for the county. When we got to the county, and they put us in their budget twice because they, they, they love job creation. So I said, look, judge us on how many of these sole proprietors, you know, mom and pops, sole proprietors, become job creators. How many jobs are created? What's the growth in revenue of those businesses? More taxes for the county. And what's the growth in income? And so they will be able to, and they said, we love to measure that. And so we're in their budget as kind of a predictable line item. And we're the cheapest job creator that they've got. And it doesn't cost them anything because these are businesses that are in our community already that are now growing. And they're growing at about, what, a, a double-digit growth almost all of them. 12 to 15% annually year over end. And why don't you describe a few of our entrepreneurs? Sure. Um, the, our first cohort of uh, entrepreneurs... Um, we were very intentional in working with some businesses that Eagle had um, been nurturing for probably some of them as many as seven years. We've been together along this journey. Um, we had a landscaper who came to us as a returning citizen. Uh, he took out an IDA, Individual Development Account, uh, grant with Eagle Market Streets. He used that to... Um, leverage uh, bank loans and, and com uh, community development financial institution loans, and now was at a point where he was looking to expand his business by virtue of uh, greater hiring or, or job creation and by looking at how to provide those uh, jobs with um, benefits like health insurance. Uh, also worked with a young man out of McDowell County that had a event center and had weathered the pandemic by taking his event center and putting it in a mobile unit and driving through the community to support people with healthy food sources. And finally, the crown jewel was a young man who uh, typically were working with businesses that are three to five years in operation. Um, this business had not been in operation that long but the owner of the business had uh, had other businesses before this that were really successful. And so he was now opening a coffee co-working space. Um, and uh, this gentleman has gone on to be well into the millions of dollars with our support uh, in the last two to three years. And one of the things that happens with these folks is as a sole proprietor, you don't think of yourself as really you know, working on the business, you think of yourself as working in the business, kind of you're treading water, and we get them up on kind of a little surfboard where they can be working on the business. And, and one story that I found really interesting, one of the entrepreneurs, and we're, Stephen Lawrence is our investment officer, and he just took the deal a black sole proprietor gets from a bank on credit cards. Not a good deal. He didn't know there was a better deal. And Stephen looked over his, uh, you know, financials and said, look, you're paying more in credit card service than you are in payroll. Now you have capital. Now you have employees. Now you have money in the bank, and they can see the cash flow. 
you can go and renegotiate. And so we, you have to help these people who have been sole proprietors think of themselves as owners and recognize the economic power that our fund gives them. And so he went and got a better deal. And, and it's that kind of thing. Sole proprietors, they struggle. They often do two or three things, keep gigs to keep things going. Now these folks are working on their business. They have to figure out payroll. They have to figure out HR. And they have to figure out who they are as owners who can get a better deal. Um, so you talked about three funds. Uh, and that those are those are part of what's replacing the extractive paradigm. Um, go into that a little more for me. Sure. So we talked um, about the community equity fund. We also have the economic justice marketplace, which features the community eco, um, community equity fund the Watershed Fund, and the Repair Fund. The community equity, again, is equity, pure equity on the balance sheet of the, of the business. The Repair Fund looks at reparations from a different perspective. When we think about reparations, we think about the root word is repair. Why do we need repair? Because something is uh, broken or has been harmed. In this case, we're looking at something that involves harm done. When urban renewal came to the city of Asheville, it displaced the African-American community in such um, perilous ways that um, the community has, has never recovered from that. But even before that was the Biltmore Estates, as it was being built, um, cut off from itself a, a little neighborhood called the Shiloh community. Shiloh is, um, as the old folks like to say, within a stone's throw of Biltmore Estates. Biltmore Estates is a billion-dollar industry, and Shiloh has sidewalks that are not passable. So we put the repair fund together to look at how to uh, help that neighborhood become healthy and thriving again with the people in the neighborhood being the decision makers around that those funds that would come to them. Kevin, you want to tell us a little bit about the watershed? Sure. The watershed fund, well, if I go back to what you were afraid I was doing. Uh, in, in, in working with Stephanie on both of these funds, she said, you're going to build this marketplace with me for all the white folks who want, who care. And then she said, you know, I've been working here 27 years and yeah, there's just not enough of them. So we need to find something they care about that will be linked into what we're doing. And we looked at crowdfunding first and discovered that was mature and being taken care of. And then there was this thing that came up uh, that um, it, it is zero interest loans in farm to table farms. And so it's patient and it's deductible, right? It's, it's again, like the equity fund. You give and then the money is recycled because so many of these farm-to-table farms can't make a living. They're struggling. They're selling some to restaurants. They're doing uh, farmer's markets. And they don't get the money to expand to make their, themselves more viable. They don't get the money to buy a refrigerator truck for distribution. They don't get the money for a hoop house. So we're launching that as well, and we're in the process of working with folks, and we've gotten a grant from uh, the folks at Hickory Nut Gap to get it going, which we greatly appreciate. And uh, there's a network of these things, and we're going to do it deeply locally. We're actually going to be doing it on our farm out in Swannanoa and gathering. What happens in other places is you gather some experienced farmers who are kind of the investing circle who decide whether this farm, if they look real. You know, I mean, these, these are... It's not formal due diligence. It's farmers understanding other farmers. And then we'll try to raise money for, for the money to go out. And we're going to be talking to all these farm-to-table restaurants that proliferate all around Asheville. And you'll see these are the farms we source from. Well, put some money back into those to make those farms more resilient. So we're going to be reaching out to those folks, as well as folks who care about economic justice. But we think more people will care about farm-to-table 
farming being resilient, and these are loans that are patient enough to help you transition to be regenerative, which means your farm can help sequester carbon over time. So that's that's the one that I'm taking the lead on, where I'm just helping and working with Stephanie on the others. Sequester carbon. Yeah. So a lot of the times with farming, takes carbon out of the ground, and it adds to the bad part of climate change. Whereas regenerative agriculture has deep roots and it keeps carbon in the soil. So it's, it's a really great solution to uh, the climate crisis. Uh, one of the things Warren Wilson has uh, one of the few places where they propagate biomedicinals and we're one of the greatest places for biomedicinals, ginseng, morning, morning, glory, morning seal, all these kinds of things. And the more, if you put those in, it helps the climate and you make money at it. And so we're going to help all those kinds of farmers do that kind of farming because it takes the problem that we're solving is one, they don't get money from banks and from credit unions. So we're giving money for that, but we're patient enough. Loans take three years. These may take five years to transition to make farming that is good for the soil that keeps carbon in. That is a response to climate change, regenerative farming, regenerates the soil and is one of the best responses to uh to climate change kevin also uh with regenerative farming it is not um a low cost uh approach to to Mm -hmm. farming um there's quite a bit of um expense involved in that so that um by working in the way that kevin is with the watershed fund um, these folks have uh, a better opportunity to become regenerative farmers because of their right. the money that Kevin's putting out. Right, and we're gathering that money. And one of the things about to that points out is that there is a cost of doing good even when you are investing. And so that's really what impact investing is. Impact investing is catalytic funding that you know causes greater change. But you will not make the same kind of money. Sometimes you don't make any money, and you just get to see your, your impact doubled every, every time a loan goes out. It'll make another loan. If you put in a $25 loan, you know, within two years, it'll be a $50 loan, but you didn't have to put in the second $25. These are recycled. So you become a more powerful giver on our marketplaces. Your, your gift will be doubled again and again and again. When you're talking about doing things that take away from the extractive paradigm and from banks, my first impulse is to say, those are people with power. They're going to do something to try to undermine that. What kind of things are going on? I can see lobbying state legislatures and laws and things that seek to undermine what you're doing? That's a wonderful question. And I would start the answer to that by saying what we built in on the front end was allies and partners in the conventional financing world. We're building their customer base for them. As we stand up stronger and more uh, resilient small businesses. Um, One of the challenges that any large banker, commercial banker will tell you is that they are not able to deploy their dollars um, equitably um, because that borrow isn't there. Uh, And why isn't it there? We go back to the beginning where there isn't friends and family to help them get there. So, again, um, building in the relationships with the Community Development Financial Institution, with credit unions, with the uh, bigger banks is going to thwart, I believe, uh, a need to, to go to the legislator and shut us down. And another way to look at it is that, you know, with our uh, watershed fund, if you go to the restaurants in uh, and around Asheville, they'll often have a little block on the bottom saying, we source from this farm, this farm, this farm. And the problem with that is those farms are not often resilient enough and they're not reliable. So we are helping their supply chains, the people who supply their food, become more reliable. So they like us. 
And then, you know, and then they become better customers. And they, the, the goal is for these farms to become bankable over time. But right now we're filling a gap because the financial system has so many gaps. And so, you know, some people would like this watershed fund because it improves the climate. Some people will like this watershed fund because it makes them able to go out and know that they'll have more local food at those restaurants. Some people will like it for all different kinds of reasons. You know, when, when I look to change a system, my model is a woman called Eleanor Ostrom. She was, uh, won the Nobel Prize for proving that the commons is not a tragedy. It just needs to be managed well in community. And she said the solution to a global problem, like climate change, is not a global solution. It's a polycentric solution. It's a pinprick everywhere. Every place is the center. So we're not going up to Raleigh or Washington to say change the system. We're changing the system all different kinds of places. At the local level. At the lower level. They They won't see us. And we'll build local economies that work for everybody. The other thing... Um, with the traditional banking um, path is that typical type of um, money that we deploy, 50, 60, 75,000 banks don't do. Um, typically, community financial development institutions, uh, while they work with micro enterprise, uh, which is basically a micro enterprise business is um, either a sole uh, entrepreneur, or it's a uh, business with less than five employees is considered micro enterprise. Those types of businesses are not the current um, sought after target audience of big banks. So that way, we're really helping build that pipeline for them. Okay. I always love it when one of my guests says, that's a wonderful question. (laughs) (laughs) Good job, Dave. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What is a create, live, work neighborhood? In my definition of a create, work, live neighborhood, again, we go back to what the social determinants of health says that you need to have a healthy, thriving uh, neighborhood. Uh, at a minimum, five things. You need a good educational system. I'm not naming them in any particular order. A good educational system for those of us who um, prescribe to Christianity and to other faith um, um Systems. We need a good faith system. We need good health care systems. We need good housing systems. And finally, we need a workforce that is uh, flexible and buoyant enough to take in the creator, somebody who just makes pottery for a living, up to the manufacturer who's manufacturing apparel. Okay. So what, what counts? as economic development. Well, what we told the county on our fund, how, and this is the way the county can count it, is how many sole proprietors become job creators, how many jobs are created, what's the growth in revenue of those businesses in, that they can tax, and what's the growth in income of those people. So that, that's one way to measure it. Okay can expand on that by saying that if those individuals uh, become employed or, or have businesses, that now they can become homeowners and they can have better opportunities or pathways to educating their children. They have opportunity for better health care. Okay. Well, I'm gathering that when you all speak of an entrepreneurial mindset, uh, that you mean something a little bit different than Shark Tank and Trump and other, you know, Elon Musk and those kind of folks. Um, talk about what you mean by an entrepreneurial mindset. Well, I don't know that I mean anything much different in that they are entrepreneurs solving a problem. It's that I've after my daughter's question, what's my life about? And I realized, well, it's really kind of about connecting with the folks who were told that they don't have a seat at the table 
So I'm, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur who's trying to build a better economy for everybody. I used to be, until she really asked that question, I was just building businesses that were interesting that solved problems. So I'm, I'm, I'm like all those people that way. I've just realized, oh, I'm, I'm, I need to make, make my life something that makes sense to my daughter. And so um, now I work for an economy that works for my grandsons to build a resilient economy that they will want to be part of. I think it's, it's just you're doing it for us rather than yourself is the difference for me anyway. I would 100 uh, percent tag that, Kevin, and agree that for me, an entrepreneurial mindset, if we think about um, those who start businesses and grow businesses, they have seen a need or a demand in the market, and they're trying to meet that uh, need or demand. Um, those are the individuals who understand that if they have ever worked a traditional job, that leaving that traditional job doesn't mean that they aren't going to face the same challenges. Somebody else is just not paying for it if you're an entrepreneur. I would uh, also warrant that as an entrepreneur, your um, determination is around how, uh, for me particularly, is around how to solve the problems and have it be equitable and inclusive as I solve that problem. You know, I tried one time to not be an entrepreneur when we moved to California for my wife to go to seminary from Mississippi. So I was kind of afraid. I'm from Mississippi. Everybody would be smarter than me. And um, so I got a job as a middle editor at a tech magazine. And it turns out that I'm a, an incredibly bad middle manager <laughs> because they would bring their articles to me to be published and I would bring them back corrected. <laughs> it's like, no, your job is to process our thinking. It's like, yeah, but it's better if I correct you. It's like, that's not your job. I didn't last there long. It's, it's hard to be a, a line worker if you've been an entrepreneur and running things. So I became an entrepreneur out there in California and it worked. Um, most of what you're doing is still talking over my head, but <laughs> so I'm still kind of struggling with all right, so now what question do I need to ask next hmm. that makes sense at all? Uh, well, what's not making sense so far, David? I mean, I'm, I'm, it's just new. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this, you're talking, um, and I'm I'm going to edit all this out by the way. But, but uh, I don't know. This is pretty good. Yeah, you're 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 talking uh, just things that I'm not familiar with, and so mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm hearing things for the first time and just trying to grasp them. Well, I would appreciate um, or very much appreciate that you said that because I think that's part of the work we do. Part of the work we do is helping introduce new thinking, ways to shift systems that are 400 plus years old. And it starts one conversation at a time. So, yeah, we're appreciative. Yeah. And a lot of Stephanie and I get each other kind of instinctively. It's kind of odd. We just have known each other about four years, but we, we roll well together. She does, you know, the leading on this stuff, and I get people to pay attention to it. But, uh, but we do kind of talk in ways that, that people who haven't thought this way haven't thought. <laughs> so it's, uh, that's really helpful. Uh, we're always trying to simplify it. It's not something we do naturally. Okay. Um, in some of your materials, uh, you mention that there is a fourth bottom line in business. I don't know what the first three are. And then the fourth one is spiritual. When I think about the triple bottom line, I think about that you have um, your profits, you have your uh, your net, you have your... um, um, I forget what the third one is already. Um, People, planet, profit, and it's the... Thank you, Kevin. Say, say that. Say that again. People, planet, and profit is the standard triple bottom line. So your business is supposed to be good for the planet, which means has a positive impact on climate change, and it's good for the people socially, somewhere or other, your employees or whatever. And then obviously profit; it makes money. Exactly. And so to add to that, how do you get there in a way that's equitable and inclusive? You bring in spirituality, where people have. Uh, those of us who um, 
prescribe to, uh, again, uh, doctrine that talks about um, taking care of our brothers, that talks about how um, we have already everything we need, um, but how do we uh, allocate that back out so that we don't have 2% of the country that owns all the wealth and the 98 go lacking. So, you know, uh, if we want to take it to scripture, the scripture says that the shepherd went after the one and left the 99. So, you know, and I take interpret that to be that it was the one who was in most need that he went after because the others could take care of themselves. So until he returned. So, yeah, that's my kind of thinking about that spirituality piece, that if we let that guide us, David, that we will have a greater opportunity of having equitable, inclusive economy. I would just say yes to that. I mean, the spiritual gives you the why, and it also gives you the who. Who is your neighbor? You know, we have a lot of folks who don't like, who, who want to keep their own and are afraid that people will come get it. I have a friend who's in Florida, and, and he said, you know, his problem with immigrants is he thinks they're coming to get his stuff. He's got a Weber grill out back. He's got, you know, his pool. And he's just afraid of that the immigrants are come and get it. He does not see the immigrant as someone like himself. And, uh, you know, I think as a believer, you know, I think your neighbor is, you know, the, the thing about the Samaritan is he was the other. He was the folks you were supposed to look down on. He was worse than a Dodger fan in terms of people that naturally people would despise. I'm from San Francisco, so I say Dodger fans is the worst of all people. But, you know, it would be like me trying to help a Dodger fan, you know. But, I mean, you know, so, so it's, it's that we're interdependent and that everybody matters. That's the thing that my faith says to me is that everybody matters. Maybe not Dodger fans. <laughs> so... Um, then in all of this, what do you all consider justice and therefore uh, an economy that is just? Again, I would answer that by saying that a just economy is striving to have more equity and less disparity. Um, as we think about asset building and, and wealth creation, we know that one of the ways to um, gain wealth is through ownership. So the more that we're able to help people own their own homes, own their own property, um, for me, the more just that becomes in our work um, as economic uh, drivers. Yeah, I think I'd go back to that initial phrase that Stephanie had the epiphany on when she said it's about wealth creation, and then it really you have to look at it as intergenerational wealth creation, meaning the creation of rich aunts and uncles who can help a startup go, and then asset creation, and that goes to houses, and that goes to commercial real estate that's community-owned. I'm really high on a thing called neighborhood investment trust, and that's really Neighbors investing in neighbors, in some cases, to preserve black Wall Streets from predatory hedge funds that want to boot them out. These are often strip malls or other kinds of things. They exist in Baltimore and Kansas City and Chicago and Atlanta and starting some in North Carolina. So it's, it's the way people can be. As you go down the block, you realize, you know, for $100, I'm an owner of this block. And so, you know, so it's, it's neighborhood, neighbors investing in neighbors, asset creation. Um, well, as a final question then, how do people that are listening to this get involved? There are multiple ways to support the work that Kevin and I do. Eagle Market Streets is a 501c3, not for profit, but for community benefit organization. You can make a donation either through our website or through um, the Economic Justice um, Marketplace where Community Equity Fund rests. Um, there are um, opportunities to um, talk and dialogue with us um, 
around community investment, around impact investing. You can join us uh, at some neighborhood economic conference coming close to you. And you could go to our site, neighborhoodeconomics.org, and be on the newsletter. And uh, we will be writing about innovators like Stephanie around the country. The great thing is there's a lot of economic justice-focused innovators like Stephanie around the country, and we're gathering them and we're telling their stories. Well, you have given us great information, uh, a lot to think about, uh, a lot of exciting things to think about. And so I'm deeply grateful uh, that you've come and shared with me today. So thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you, David. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode is from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come, which is found on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and is used by permission from the Porter's Gate Worship Project. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak your peace.